Good morning, beloved. This Sunday, we begin a new journey in God's Word. It's a journey that will take us through this year around two large and important books of the Bible, Daniel and John's book we call Revelation. As we start this journey together, I want you to see the artwork that Sarah Sulik, our graphic designer, created for this series. There's an important part in our creative process at the church as we're meditating on the scripture and looking to, as to what is to come. And Sarah drew this beautiful artwork. And you can see on the one side, you see Daniel in a posture of prayer. You can recognize Daniel because he has Babylonian windows behind him. On the other side, you see John, also in a posture of prayer, a prayer that was lifted inside of a cave. Both of these men, though they lived centuries apart from one another, look in the same direction. They look to the answer to what Jesus taught us to pray, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Above them, you see a window open with a view inside the city of God, the New Jerusalem. The Bible ends with the city of God coming down from heaven as a place for God and His people to dwell. We see that heaven and earth are connected decisively in the manger scene underneath this prayer. This beautiful drawing, it's gives us the shape, if you look at it just right, there's a shape of a Jerusalem cross coming out from the drawing, the square-shaped cross. These two books of the Bible offer much for us to learn and to grow. This morning, we want to look at the opening paragraph of Daniel and Revelation. Now, we'll look together at Daniel through the fall. We'll come back to Revelation in the spring But I want you to connect these two books of the Bible right from the beginning. Sometimes these books are hard to understand, and yet actually they have much to teach us. Daniel is near the end of the Old Testament, and Revelation is at the end of the New Testament. But as different as they are, Daniel and Revelation share a number of things. Both of these men were in exile. Both of them ministered in a foreign country and in a language that was not their own. Both of them served God for a very long time, decades of faithful service. Both of them witnessed the rise and fall of many kings and emperors. Both of them saw that God's kingdom was everlasting, that His will would one day be done on all the earth. Above all, Both Daniel and John in Revelation point us towards Christ. They point us towards Christ and to see His will coming to pass in their lives and in the world. And so as we begin this journey together, let's take a look at the opening of each of these two books. And then we'll compare what Daniel and John have in common And in the end, we'll apply that to all of us. Are we ready? Let's try that one more time. Are we ready for that? Amen. All right. 
first service was the same. I know it's a holiday weekend, but we're ready. So let's look first at Daniel, uh, the opening paragraph of Daniel. And Daniel's book starts with a date formula that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The third year of Jehoiakim is 605 B.C. Now some of you may be thinking right now, that's not really a big year for me. Well, it's not a big year for any of us, but it was a big year for Nebuchadnezzar. He was a young man, and he was leading the Babylonian army in a major battle against Egypt. And that battle happened at Carchemish, and the Egyptians were routed and defeated, and they retreated all the way to Egypt, and Egyptian influence north of Egypt ceased at that time, and Babylon ended up ruling the world. Nebuchadnezzar, after he had finished that conquest, he was proclaimed king when his father died. He gathered the lands south of Carchemish, and that included the land of Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital. The ESV in Daniel 1.1 says that, that Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city, but the Hebrew text says something a little bit more subtle. It says that he afflicted the city, or he treated the city like a vassal. He didn't actually attack the city of Jerusalem. That comes about 20 years later. But in this moment, he treats Judah and Jerusalem like a vassal or a subject people. In verse 2, we read something much more significant than Nebuchadnezzar's action. We read that it's the Lord who gave Jehoiakim into his hand. And this is critical for us and for the book of Daniel and for the book of Revelation, that God is the one who rules over all of history, that he controls the rising and falling of nations, and that his will is being accomplished in the world. It's critical for us to know that and believe that because sometimes our experience in this world, it seems like evil has the upper hand. It sometimes feels like other other powers ruling. Sometimes it feels like my life is out of control. And yet the scriptures teach us that God is in charge. Amen. This is very good news. And it's signaled to us just in the phraseology of this verse that despite this massive change, it was the Lord who gave Jerusalem into his hands. Nebuchadnezzar also took some of the vessels of the house of God, and this grieves us. It would be like taking the communion elements and just taking them into a pagan shrine. Nebuchadnezzar would be famous for his building projects. His most famous project is called the Etemenanki, which means the temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. Nebuchadnezzar built a ziggurat structure... A seven-stepped structure with a temple on the top. And he said, this structure is how heaven and earth get joined together. The bricks that he used to build it all had his name stamped on them. He would be a great builder. He would build the city of Babylon. And he built the city of Babylon with 15 million bricks. And every single one of them has his name stamped on it. This artifact from the Shoyan collection 
is one of the only images of Nebuchadnezzar that we have. Here's Nebuchadnezzar standing next to the architectural plan of his temple. He called it a ziggurat, a tower reaching up to heaven. And this seven-stepped tower with a temple on the top, you see Nebuchadnezzar standing next to it. And he has a staff in one hand and he has a stylus in the other, signaling his identity as a learned and literate man. Nebuchadnezzar took not only the status of Jerusalem and Judah away, he took some of the treasures of the temple as tribute, but he took something even more valuable. He took the best of the next generation. In verse 3, we read that the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, and I asked the, the first service kids to ask their parents after the service about the chief eunuch and what that means. But uh, if you look at the task given to Ashpenaz, he is to bring some of the people of Israel, and he brings some of the royal family, but also of the nobility. The text says to bring the first class. He takes the cultural elites of the next generation and he takes them far away. Have you ever had to move to a different city or a different country and you wondered, is God in charge of my life? Daniel is brought hundreds of miles away. They are brought together with this group. They're described as without blemish, handsome, of good appearance, skillful, they're intelligent, and they're competent to stand in the king's palace. But they are brought, this next generation of leadership in Jerusalem and Judah, and they are taken all the way to Babylon to learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. They are required to learn a completely new set of subjects, and even languages. Some of you know what it's like to be an international student. And that can be a great disruption in your life. It also can be a time of great learning and growth. Cincinnati is blessed just at the University of Cincinnati to have 6,000 international students here. And it's a wonderful chance actually to touch lives from all over the world. But Daniel is taken from a promising future in Jerusalem and Judah, and now he is taken all the way to Babylon. He has to learn new subjects, new literature, and new language. New literature like the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the earliest stories of the world. At the center of the story of Gilgamesh is a quest for eternal life. The first story that humanity has outside of the Bible is a longing for how do I get eternal life? And I wonder what Daniel was thinking as he learned that story. The Bible speaks to that. God's word speaks to how eternal life is obtained. He had to learn also laws of the Babylonians, laws like the laws of Hammurabi, This is the stela of Hammurabi's laws. It's preserved from antiquity and it's on display in the Louvre in Paris. Daniel had to learn these laws. Literature, epic stories. He also had to learn a new language. And the language he had to learn was a difficult language. 
he had to learn Babylonian, also called Akkadian. Sometimes this language is called cuneiform, which is the Latin name for it because the Latins called it cuneiform because it has little wedge shapes to it. Cuneiform writing was often done in clay tablets, pressed into the clay, and then the clay would be baked. There's been a recent development in AI technology to learn ancient Akkadian. And I happen to have an Akkadian reader in my house, and I asked her, How's the, how's the artificial intelligence doing with uh, reading the ancient Babylonian text? And she said, it's, it's, it's growing, but it's not doing it very accurately yet. This is a difficult language. And some of you are looking at that tablet thinking, that doesn't look that hard. Let me give you a closer up view of the Cyrus Cylinder. And the Cyrus Cylinder, the cuneiform writing on the Cyrus Cylinder looks like this. There are 700 cuneiform signs, and each sign makes a syllable. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at that, it's hard to tell one from another, isn't it? And you're thinking, some of you are thinking right now, wow, I've never been so grateful for the alphabet. Just, just 22, 24, 26 letters in the variations of the alphabet that most of us use. That seems like, wow, so easy. 700 signs. Let me show you one of the signs. One of the, this is the cuneiform sign for Lord, the Babylonian word N. And this, if you look at the tablet, that's the ancient version of the sign. And it looks like a throne. Can you see that? It looks like a throne, and it's the word for Lord. At some point in the history of the cuneiform, the sign was rotated that's how you get to the third image, moving from uh, left to right. And then finally, the last image, you can see how cuneiform is written with a stylus, and you push it into the clay, and then you draw a line. And the word for Lord has these five strokes. I wonder when Daniel had to learn this, if he thought of Isaiah, I am the Lord, there is none like me. I wonder, I wonder if he thought of Exodus 15 when the Lord says, who is like me? Daniel learned not only the literature and the language of the Babylonians, he also had to learn the language of Aramaic, which was a court language. Aramaic was the first global language. It functioned in its time like English does today. People all over the world learn English as an international medium of communication. In the New Testament times, people learned Greek as a, a global language. In Daniel's time, people learned Aramaic as a global language. Now, some of us know a few Aramaic words, and we don't even realize it. A few Aramaic words have come into the English language, especially for Christians. I'll give you one of my favorites. The word Maranatha is an Aramaic word. Mar means Lord, Maran means our Lord, and Atta means come. And so when you say Maranatha, you're saying in the Aramaic word that says come, our Lord. It's the early Christian prayer in one word for Jesus' return. Jesus' ministry was conducted publicly in Aramaic, a global language that everyone could hear. Well, Daniel was brought to Babylon he was required to go to school for three years. 
The king gave a portion from his table for these students. We'll see next week that Daniel and his companions refused the king's food, and we'll see why. But for now, I want you to notice that this is the setting. They were brought there, verse 6, among these taken into exile were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Young men, college age, taken far from home to a foreign country, a foreign culture, to learn a foreign language, a foreign literature, to be trained in the court of a Babylonian king. It was a change of location, a change of language, a change of status. And maybe most devastatingly of all, they were given a change of name. All of these men had Hebrew names and names that announced faith in the God of their ancestors. Daniel's name, Daniel, means God is my judge. And his name is changed to a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, which means may the God Nabu protect his life. That must have been difficult for him to be called that. His friend Hanania, Hanania in Hebrew means Yahweh is gracious. And yet his name is changed to Shadrach, which in Babylonian means I am afraid. It's a name that puts him down. The name Mishael in Hebrew means who is like God. What a fantastic name. His name is changed to Mishak which in Babylonian means, I am insignificant. Another name that puts him down. Azaria means Yahweh is my help. And his name is changed to Abednego, servant of Nabu. These men were taken in a, to a long way from home. And they must have had a lot of questions. And sometimes when our lives are disrupted and and there's change that happens, we wonder, can God be trusted with my life? That's a, a fair question. Daniel and John's revelation will help us answer that question, that God can be trusted. But I think that Daniel and his friends and John in his situation also asked a question that we all must ask. And that is a question of how Will I faithfully serve God here? How will I serve God in this situation? This is not where I was planning to be, but here I am. And if you are in a situation that you did not expect to be this morning, it's a fantastic question to ask. How do I serve God in this situation? How can I stay faithful to God in this circumstance? Maybe huge change has happened in your life. Maybe even change you didn't desire. Maybe you've come a long way and you found yourself in a new situation. It's a great question to ask, how will I serve God in this spot? Let's look at John's opening paragraph briefly. John writes in Revelation chapter 1 of a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is a critical thing for us to get right, right from the beginning. You know, when I was uh, learning to ride a bike and my dad was teaching me how to do it, those first couple of moves were critical. If you get this wrong early, like everything's going to be wrong, right? And Revelation, I don't know where this comes from, but somehow there's a love affair with the letter S that slips in here occasionally. 
And I hear people describe this and they say, oh, I'm really interested in the book of Revelations. And I say, what book is that? Because this is not Revelations, amen? It's singular. This is actually very, very important. Because if you call it Revelations, you're already going to misread the whole book. Because you're going to think this is a book about like secret knowledge and a set of revelations to be unpacked. Revelation is singular. It's just one. What's it about? It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Revelation isn't about the end of the world. Revelation is about Jesus Christ. Who he is. What he's like. What he's doing now. It's a book that God sent to encourage his servants. It was sent to his servant John. It was signified to him. Heavy use of symbols and imagery. John in verse 2 bears witness to the word of God, the testimony of Jesus, to everything that he saw. And this is a feature that Daniel and Revelation share is that they are very visual books. Books that we should see as well as hear. There's a blessing in Revelation on everyone who reads the words. But there's a blessing on us who hear them and keep what's written. John writes not for himself, but he writes to the churches scattered in Asia. He sends greetings from him who is, was, and is to come, God the Father, from the seven spirits before his throne, which is revelation speak for the Holy Spirit. And in verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead. And I love this line, the ruler of the kings on earth. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the rulers? He keeps them accountable. He runs his kingdom. Not only is Jesus the sovereign over the kings and us, but he loves us. So we see in this verse that Jesus is both powerful and loving. Isn't that good? That's a great combination. He loves us. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. He's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, and to him is glory and dominion forever. John says he's coming with the clouds, which is a quotation from Daniel chapter 7. So we know that John read Daniel, just like we're about to do. He says that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, was, and is to come, the Almighty. John also, like Daniel, learned another language, in his case, Greek, to do his ministry. And he expresses something beautiful about the Lord in this statement, Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega is the last letter. After the service, before you leave, stop, turn around, look at the stained glass window in the back of the sanctuary, and you see the Alpha and the Omega as these two letters in the book that Jesus is holding. To call Jesus the Alpha and the Omega is not only to say he's there at the beginning and he will be there at the end, it's to say that he is the A and the Z and that he is in charge of everything in between. That means he can be trusted with your life today. And with mine. This is one of the great lessons of these books. In verse 9, John says that he is the brother and the partner. He shares in these wonderful things that all Christians share in. 
Wonderful things that we have as part of the body of Christ. Wonderful things like sharing in the tribulation. Isn't that fantastic? Some of you are quiet right now. It's a blessing, actually, to share in the affliction that afflicts the body of Christ. It's a shared experience. Because it also is evidence of a sharing in the kingdom and the reign of God. And it's a blessing to share in the patient endurance, the perseverance. All of those things are in Jesus. And John tells us where he was at the moment he received this vision. He was on an island called Patmos, a rocky island in the Aegean Sea that the Romans used as a prison. John was taken into exile, far from home, just like Daniel. And he was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John had borne witness to the Roman world that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was God. And this infuriated a man named Domitian. When we were in Ephesus this summer, I took this picture of Domitian's colossal head. Now, many of us probably don't even know this guy's name, and isn't that its own testimony? When Domitian lived and ruled and reigned, he required people to address him as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. That's awkward. That's difficult if you already know that Jesus is Lord and God. And John and other Christians uh, sparked his fury, and so Domitian banished John to this island prison. And in a cave on that island prison, God gave John a vision of the glorious, everlasting, enduring reign of Christ and the ending of the Bible. And this vision is, is, is critically important in the first century and the 21st century. So after we look at the opening of these two great majestic books, we ask ourselves this morning, what do Daniel and John have in common and how can we today in the 21st century grow as disciples of Jesus by listening to them? Let's talk about that for just a minute. Both of these men were forcibly taken into exile. Daniel was taken to Babylon. John was taken to Patmos. Both of these men served God in their, a second language that was not their own. For Daniel, it was the court language of Babylonian and the global language of Aramaic. For John, it was learning Greek as a second language. Both of them served God far from home. And yet, as we encounter these books and we observe these two men, we'll discover that both of them sustained their life of faith by a regular habit of devotional prayer. Devotional prayer is the lifeblood for both of these men. We see Daniel in prayer in Daniel 1, 2, chapter 6. He's praying three times a day. He's praying at the time of the morning, the noon, and the evening sacrifice. He's holding the life of worship in his heart and it sustains his long-term and loyalty to God. John, similarly, we read in Revelation that though he was exiled, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's one of our earliest references to Christian worship on a Sunday morning. And being in worship and being in a life of prayer sustains his faith. And if these two men in those situations need devout sustained regular prayer then we need that too amen 
It's my great pastoral hope for Kenwood this year that our church would grow in depth of prayer. I think this is a place that all of us can grow. I need to grow in this as well. Let's grow deeper and more consistent in the life of prayer. Not just asking God for things that we need in the moment, but let's live in a life of prayer where we seek God's will to be done, where we pray for His kingdom, where we enter into His courts. Both Daniel and John knew and lived the Scriptures. Daniel showed his loyalty to God and keeping the dietary laws in chapter 1. He showed modesty in the presence of the king like Proverbs 23. He repented for the sin of the nation after reading Jeremiah in Daniel chapter 9. John's work in Revelation is saturated with scriptural imagery, explicit citations from the Bible, including Daniel as well. And if Daniel and John needed to be soaked in God's word for a life of faith, we do too. Both of these men served God for a very long time. I don't want to follow a cultural fad. I don't want to divert my Christian life over a brand new uh, celebrated pastor leader. I want to grow and learn from people who have loved and served Jesus for a long time. Our church is filled with people like that and they are treasures in God's kingdom. You know there's a maturity that comes with following God for decades, isn't there? And if you are a person like that, and there are many of you here at Kenwood, can I just talk to you for one second and ask that you take the treasures of what God has shown you in Christ and that you pour that out back into the generation coming up. Because they need that. They need to know what you know, that God can be trusted and that he's worth serving over a long time. Daniel serves God for almost 70 years. I want to learn from someone like that. John, similarly, close to 70 years of following Christ. Both of these men maintained their loyalty to God in a difficult environment when such loyalty came at a great personal cost. Both of these men saw monumental building projects. Both of them saw military conquest. Both of them saw human kings arrogantly claim sovereignty over all peoples. But both of them saw human kings rise and fall. Many of them. Daniel served in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. He served in the court of Belshazzar, of Cyrus, of Darius the Mede. John lived through the reign of the emperors Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. And he saw all these leaders come and go. All these men who said they were sovereign over everything. And he saw them rise and fall. And they maintained their vision fixed on God because of what Daniel will write in Daniel chapter 2 that we'll get to in a couple of weeks that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another. God's kingdom will stand forever. You can build your life on this, Kenwood. 
And these men did. God's kingdom and his kingship and his sovereignty over all peoples, you can bank your today and your forever on this truth. Both of these men saw dreams and visions of God's kingdom. They saw that his victory would be achieved not through military conquest, but through suffering and faithful witness. Maybe most importantly of all, both of these men saw Jesus Christ. Daniel, in exile in Babylon, in chapter 7, that we'll reach later this fall, has a vision. And in his vision, he sees heaven. He sees God enthroned. He sees the heavenly court around him. He sees God in such glory and majesty that it was overwhelming to him. And as he looked at God enthroned, suddenly he sees one like a son of man, a human yet divine figure approaching God, the ancient of days. And this son of man receives an everlasting kingdom that will never go away. And this son of man receives from God an everlasting dominion of all peoples that belong to him. And beloved, when we read the New Testament Gospels and we listen to Jesus, Jesus' favorite way to describe himself is as the Son of Man. When Jesus was asked on trial before Caiaphas, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? Jesus answered by quoting Daniel 7. Daniel saw him and anticipated his arrival John saw Jesus in his earthly ministry. John leaned his head against Jesus' chest in the Last Supper when Jesus explained the meaning of his imminent death. John saw Jesus die on the cross and saw him pierced with a Roman sword. But John saw him also exalted in glory. And beloved, that's how Jesus is right now. As we are gathered in his name to worship... And do you know that there are 2,500 churches just in our city? Praise the Lord. Thousands of gatherings are happening right now just in our town. How many thousands of gatherings are happening in our state or in, in just this nation? How many hundreds of thousands, millions, or billions of people living right now are gathering to exalt Jesus Christ and say he is Lord? He can be trusted. John saw him in glory and eagerly awaited his return. Both of these men discovered that God can be trusted, that he is in control no matter what comes our way. And they saw that heaven and earth are connected decisively in Jesus Christ. Beloved, we have much to learn from these two books. I know that some of their genre seems unfamiliar. And sometimes people read these books and say, I'm totally confused. I hope that you won't say that at the end of this fall or spring. But let me tell you the key. And that's just to keep your eyes on Jesus. When you keep your eyes on Jesus in these books, then you will discover that he is at work in the world, that he's sovereign over the circumstances, 
Some of you may have come to church this morning and you're hurting right now. You're going through something that is painful that you didn't plan for. And, and I want to remind you from the life experience of both of these biblical writers that God can be trusted in those circumstances. And that it's right for you to ask, how can I serve God faithfully right now in this situation? Some of you may have moved recently or even come to a new country and, and I want you to know from God's word that he can be trusted and that he has plans and purposes for you to be here now. I want to warmly invite you to join this series as we learn to, and grow together. Be open to what God wants to teach us. Let's be open to where he will take us and be open to how he will use us in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. I want us to see together that heaven and earth are meant to be connected. That when Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is the prayer of the Son of God who descended from heaven and came to earth. He came to repair what's broken. And he did that on the night in which he was betrayed he broke bread in the presence of his disciples and he told them, this is my body, his real human body, broken for us. He lifted the cup in their presence and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus poured himself out, shed his blood so that we could be brought into an eternal, everlasting, unbreakable relationship with God. Heaven is not so far away for all who believe in Christ. God's kingdom and kingship are meant to be exercised over us. You may have come this morning thinking, I've made a mess of my life. Do you know that this is the best place to be for people who've made a mess of things? There's nothing really special about this room or this building, but there's something very special about the one that we remember. Because he takes broken lives, puts them back together. He takes lives that are in chaos, and he puts them back in order. there's nothing broken that Jesus Christ can't put back together in your life right now. And so I want to invite you to trust him right now, just that, just trust him. He wants to rule and reign sovereignly over your life. He wants to put it back together. We're going to sing this song called Sovereign as an act of preparation and a confession of trust that all of our lives are in his hands. And so I invite you to sing this with me as we pray and prepare our hearts and then I'll come back and lead us to partake together. This isn't the table of Kenwood Baptist Church. It's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you identify yourself as a Christian belonging to him, then I warmly invite you to partake with us in a few minutes. 
Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you this morning. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your goodness. And we thank you that you do desire to hold us in your hands. And I pray, Lord, that you would take everything broken and repair it. Everything scattered and gather it again. Lord, help us never to trust in any man, anything, but to trust only in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.